Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a show about breasts and the people who have them. From bras and sexuality to health and everyday life, this is the very breast podcast ever. Hi, Breasties. My name is Nadia Figueroa and I'm a bra designer. We're back. Life has really been throwing us some curveballs these last few weeks, but we love that you keep coming back to us and listening. I often get stressed out about keeping to a schedule, making sure I'm putting content out in a timely manner, worried we'll lose listeners if I don't get the next episode out and finished in time. But being in go, go, go mode has never served me well, and sometimes I have to give in to that millennial trope that I have to treat my mental health as well as my physical health. I keep saying out loud, I need to get my shit together. But in reality, as one of my best friends always tells me, getting your shit together is never really the immediate goal. It's about making small, attainable adjustments that bring you closer to that finished product. I've said it before, we're all works in progress here. And whenever I do get stressed, our producer, Alyssa McHugh, always reminds me, life comes first. And you know what? You breasties are always there for us, whether it takes us two weeks or a month to get a new episode out. You always come back to us, and we love you for that. So, thank you. Thank you for listening to every single episode. Thank you for engaging with us on social, for all your lovely messages. You make all the research and late nights worth it, and we can't wait to bring you more content. And now, we have a favor to ask you. Please go on whatever platform you listen to us on and rate and review our podcast. It takes just a couple minutes, and it really does help new listeners find the show. You're probably listening on your phone, right? Go ahead, tap, tap, tap over to your podcast app, and leave us a little review. I'll start the show right after this intro music, so don't worry, you won't miss anything. This last entry in our breast cancer series is going to focus on a different kind of survivor story. This episode, we're going to talk about previvors. You may or may not have heard this word before, but there's a good chance you're familiar with the concept. 
previvors refer to people who are predisposed to hereditary cancer. We'll come back to the word previvor in a few, but first, let's explore that term, hereditary cancer. What is that? You may remember from our first episode in this series that cancer is basically uncontrolled cell growth. Taking you back to high school biology, and remember, I'm not a doctor or a scientist, so this is going to be extremely simplified. Genes are the building blocks of our DNA, and DNA is essentially a blueprint for the structure, function, and behavior of our cells, which are the building blocks of, well, us. Genes basically work like on and off switches for our cells. They control all of our cells' functions, including multiplying and, when necessary, dying. And when they're working properly, they act as fail-safes to help protect us from developing cancer. If one of our cells goes rogue and just can't get enough of itself, we have specific genes that step in and kill the offending cells to stop it from killing us. So it goes without saying that if one of those genes gets damaged, it can result in that uncontrolled cell growth. Cancer. Anytime DNA copies itself during cell multiplication, there is a risk that a gene can mutate or change or get damaged. Now, this happens all the time in our cells, but usually our body finds the mistake and fixes it before it becomes an issue. Sometimes, though, our cells can't fix those mutations and they end up getting passed on to other cells. For whatever reason, the gene that is supposed to protect us can't or fails to do its job. All cancers are caused by a change or damage to one of those genes, and as we get older, those gene mutations become more likely, so we have a higher risk of developing cancer as we age. So that accounts for cancers that just pop up during our lifetime, the ones that are a result of devastatingly bad luck. Sometimes, though, cancers are caused by genetic mutations we're born with that were passed on to us from our parents. People born with these mutations are predisposed to develop cancer at an earlier age than average. This is known as hereditary cancer. It accounts for about 5 to 10% of all cancers. And in breast cancer specifically, the statistics are about the same. There are two pretty famous offenders when it comes to hereditary breast cancer, BRCA1 and BRCA2, spelled B-R-C-A. That stands for breast, B-R, cancer, C-A, gene 1, and breast cancer, gene 2. Gotta love a good acronym, right? The BRCA gene mutation was discovered in 1990. I believe there's a common misconception that it's the genes themselves that cause cancer. That's certainly what I thought. If you test positive for these genes, you're going to get cancer. But actually, everyone has these two genes. They're tumor suppressor genes, and they act as the gatekeepers I told you about earlier. Their job is to make sure that cell growth stays under control. So if someone gets genetic testing, it's not really the presence of these genes that's being tested for. It's the presence of mutations of the genes that cause them not to function properly. BRCA1 and BRCA2 cover other types of cancer as well. Women who have BRCA1 and BRCA2 genetic mutations have a heightened risk of developing not only breast cancer, but also ovarian, pancreatic cancer, and melanoma. And men who have the BRCA1 or BRCA2 genetic mutations are at a greater risk for prostate, pancreatic, melanoma, and, yes, breast cancer. Never forget that dudes can get breast cancer too. Check your pecs. Of course, if someone has one of these mutations, it doesn't definitely mean they will get cancer. On average, a woman who has a BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene mutation has up to a 7 in 10 chance of getting breast cancer, although I read in one Washington Post article the risk could also be as high as 87%. 
That's significantly higher than the 1 in 8 chance of women who don't have the mutation. BRCA1 and BRCA2 also aren't the only gene mutations we have to look out for. They're just the most common, and generally speaking, they're the most risky. In my research, I found there are literally dozens of mutations that can lead to hereditary breast cancer, and there's still research being done to find more, just in case you needed something else to keep you up at night these days. So how do I know if I have one of these risky gene mutations? Well, if you think you're at risk, your practitioner can perform a blood test that uses DNA analysis to identify mutations in the breast cancer susceptibility genes. FYI, we will link in our show notes sources where you can get this genetic testing done. There are certain members of the population who are considered to be at greater risk for having these mutations. According to breastcancer.org, you're a candidate for the BRCA gene test if you fall into any one of these categories. You have a blood relative on either side of your family who had breast cancer before age 50. There is both breast and ovarian cancer on the same side of the family or in a single individual. You have relatives with triple negative breast cancer, that is, cancer that is not fueled by hormones or the HER2 protein. You have a relative who had cancer in both breasts. There are other cancers in your family other than breast cancer. A man in your family has had breast cancer. You are black and have been diagnosed with breast cancer at age 35 or younger. Side note, I dove into this one more, and what I found is that while it has become clear that although the incidence rate of breast cancer in black women is similar to that of white women, the mortality rates are extremely different. Overall, there's been a 40% decline in breast cancer deaths over the last 30 years. But today, black women diagnosed with breast cancer still have a 40% higher death rate than white women. That number is even higher in black women under 50. Black women also tend to be diagnosed with more aggressive breast cancers at younger ages and in more advanced stages. The jury still seems to be out as to why, and that is primarily because breast cancer research studies and clinical trials are overwhelmingly conducted in only white women. This also doesn't account for the huge disparity in access to healthcare and insurance among non-white Americans. That results in delayed diagnoses and interrupted or incomplete treatment, and it's a major factor in breast cancer mortality rates in minorities. For more information on the research being done in this area, please visit the Breast Cancer Research Foundation website at brcf.org. We'll link them in our show notes. Another risk factor that contributes to the likelihood of a BRCA mutation is being of Ashkenazi Jewish descent. That's because something called a founder mutation, specifically in the BRCA gene, runs through the genetic lines of Ashkenazi Jews. A founder mutation is a genetic mutation that originated in a small, isolated group of ancestors. Ashkenazi Jews are members of the Jewish faith whose ancestry traces back to Eastern Europe. Although about 80% of modern Jews are of Ashkenazi descent, their roots can actually be traced to a small group of around 330 people who lived during the Middle Ages. Women of Ashkenazi descent have a much higher risk of having that founder mutation in the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene, approximately 1 in 40. And since historically Jewish people have married within their own faith, it's made that founder mutation prevalent in modern Ashkenazi Jews. One thing I want to mention is that while all of these are risk factors, they're just that, risks. If one of these applies to you, it doesn't definitely mean you have a risky gene. In our last episode, we spoke to a breast cancer survivor who was only 32 when she was diagnosed, and to this day, she has tested negative for every risky gene we're testing is available. Up until 1999, the word most often used to describe people who carried these gene mutations but had not been diagnosed with cancer yet was unaffected carrier. 
But in an effort to give identity and empowerment to the people faced with the challenges that come along with the increased risk of cancer, the word previvor was born. The term was first used in 2000 by an organization called FORCE, a U.S.-based organization who advocates for and provides educational material to help people with hereditary cancer make medical decisions for their survival. FORCE stands for Facing Our Risk of Cancer Empowered, again with the great acronyms, although I think this one is technically a backronym, but I digress. No two breasts are alike, and no two breast cancers are alike. So of course it makes sense that not everyone identifies with the word pre-viver. Some find it glib or demeaning towards breast cancer survivors, since by definition, pre-vivers have never actually had cancer. I'm going to quote Rethink Breast Cancer's response to this issue because I think they sum it up really well. Quote, This us versus them mentality is a disservice to all women who are struggling with their risk or with cancer. Being able to self-identify with whatever label one wants is empowering when it comes to getting support and finding a community that accepts you for who you are. After all, that is what we all need, no matter what we are facing. End quote. Previvors face their own set of decisions, challenges, and difficulties that cannot and should not be compared to anyone else's. Most often after genetic testing, if you're found to have one of these risky genes, it's recommended you speak to your doctor and a genetic counselor to weigh your options. These options include living your life as before, but with heightened screening and surveillance, or sometimes surgical options such as having prophylactic or preventative mastectomies. The issue of monitoring versus surgery is a major debate in the breast cancer community. We spoke to an amazing previvor, and she does identify with that word, who was faced with that exact decision and chose surgery over monitoring. Chloe Coslin is a good friend of Alyssa's and graciously shared her story with us during what completely coincidentally happened to be National Hereditary Cancer Week. She has a no-nonsense, straightforward, but warm delivery. And we hope you'll walk away from this conversation with the same sense of hope and empowerment that we did. Breasties, please welcome Chloe Coslin to the very breast podcast ever. Welcome to the very breast podcast ever. Nice to meet you, Chloe. Alyssa shared a little bit about your experience with me, and I know you went through a pretty intense experience at a young age. You were 26 when you tested positive for both BRCA genes, and because you had an increased risk of cancer, I think something like 72%, you then decided to have a double mastectomy and implants. Nice to meet you and happy to be here. Um, So yeah, I was just turned 26 when I found out that I was positive for both genes. Um, Basically, my paternal grandmother, who is an Ashkenazi Jew, got diagnosed with breast cancer at 32 and died at 39. And so my mom growing up was always like, this could be a thing, you're going to have to like get early screening. So I was getting screening since I was 24. Everything was normal. Um, They always kept asking me, do you want to get tested? Do you want to get tested? I was like, no. And then I'm like, you know what, let me have my dad get tested and then he'll be negative and I'll be negative and we can just like move on with our lives. And so in June of 2018, I was actually home with my mom and I get a call from my dad being like, I'm so sorry, like I'm positive. I'm positive for both genes. And like, I knew in my gut that I was too at that moment, like we're very, very, very similar um, in many, many ways. And I just kind of a hundred percent knew that I was going to have to go down this path and I would be positive too. Um, So in August of that year, I got tested and found out I was positive for both genes. Um, And for me, it kind of just like, wasn't even a choice. Like, I feel like I was in this situation where I would almost be able to cheat God and be able to like, 
see in the future. And so there was no option for me whether or not to get this double mastectomy. It was just like, this is what we're going to have to do now. Like I'm making this appointment, like I'm scheduling a surgery and we're going to go and do this. And so in February of 2019, uh, I got the surgery. So you and your dad were the first in your family to get tested, right? Yeah, exactly. Like BRCA is a fairly new thing. So they've only been doing tests for it for the past like 15, 20 years, really even knew it was a thing. Um, and so like his mom obviously was not as lucky. Was it just kind of a situation where like um, your parents suspected that there might be a gene for it, but they just weren't sure? Like what led you to actually go get tested? Probably my mom. Like she really always just brought up like this is really common in Ashkenazi Jews and she died so early of breast cancer and and like so you're gonna have to deal with this whatever that meant and as I got older you know I'm 29 now so even in my mid-20s like they'll insurance will cover testing and will cover the surgery from like 10 years before or after the like family member um, was diagnosed or died so I could have started this at 22 I started at 24. And uh, how old was your grandmother, you said, when she contracted it? 32 and died at 39. Okay. So once you had the confirmed tests, tell me about the day you got your results back. What was that like for you? I actually was in the car home, going home from JFK, from visiting my aunt in Florida. And I like got the call from the geneticist. And I was just like, she like told me and I was like, yeah, I had a feeling like yeah I, I knew it was almost like I wasn't surprised I just really really knew in my gut that I was going to be positive and so it wasn't as shocking and it was kind of just like time to like plan time to go on to the next and figure out like what I need to do and luckily I had already been seeing a really really amazing breast surgeon for my screenings um that I just kind of went to her and she works with the plastic surgeons who developed like straight to implant double mastectomies. My plastic, sorry, my breast surgeon, um, she partners with this duo of plastic surgeons and one of them like created straight to implant double mastectomies. So there's two kinds of double mastectomies. One is where you have to have um, expanders and that is kind of proven through studies to be like really, really mentally tough on patients. Because over, you know, you have to psych yourself up for the surgery, you get the surgery, and then over six months after you have to get saline um, shot into the expanders over time to expand the skin enough to then go through another surgery and put the implants in. And so this just happened to be that my amazing breast surgeon worked with the plastic surgeons who originated this way more, um, less, way less antiquated surgery. Um, and so it was kind of just like, okay, like make an appointment with them figure out, figure out how to deal with this. Um, I was like doing some research and I, and I saw this woman who was writing an article for like bustle or something. And it was like, she found out she was BRCA positive, um, through a 23andMe test results. She was probably, I think like a year or two older than me. And I reached out to her over Instagram because she was like going through this as I was. And I actually happened to reach out to her the day before her surgery and made like a connection with her and she really helped me figure out like what kind of things I need to buy for post-op and you know what is annoying and what is painful and like what isn't actually as bad as you think it would be and having that was really really helpful too. 
One of the things that I remember when I was uh, trying to figure out what to like get for you was like, I it was hard to find, I mean like, it was harder to find it specific to your circumstance. Cause I think at first I was trying to find like a book or something that I could get mm-hmm. you a course because that's like just so what I would do. <laughs> um, but I was like, there was, it was always like somebody who already had cancer. And so it was like, mm-hmm. I couldn't find, it was so hard to find material that was like a, a shared experience or a shared story. And I remember when mm-hmm. you told me that you were connecting with that woman and it was just so good for you. Yeah, exactly. And um, actually both of Alyssa and my manager at the time um, his niece happened to have it and had gone through the surgery already. So I was able to meet her in person. She actually worked for, um, for Sloan Kettering, which is like mm-hmm. one of the best cancer hospitals. And she got it done there uh, because she worked there already, but it was great to meet her. And she was kind of like, you feel like, you know, you're going to feel like you're never going to be able to lift your arms again. Like you will. And like, you know, she wasn't even in a ser- she wasn't in serious relationships. And she's like, I've dated people and they haven't even noticed like, it was just, it was great to just kind of have that like 20 minutes on a park bench with her to just give, give information that you can't really get easily because as Alyssa said, like, it's not, this isn't a cancer diagnosis. This is a very, very unique thing. You're a, you're not like a cancer survivor. You're like a, a pre-vivor, I think is what they called her pre-survivor. That actually brings me to my next question for you, which is mm-hmm. that did they give you any other options or was this kind of what you knew you wanted to do from the day you got the results? So, I mean, the other option is just to get screenings every six months and frankly live in fear. Like, I just don't think that that was, that was never an option in my eyes. This was, I felt, even though it sucked, I felt so lucky to be given this option. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a bit of selfishness if I wasn't going to, to, you know, my boyfriend, to our future kids, to my parents, you know, to everyone close in my life where like, I'm choosing not to because I don't know, I'm scared or whatever it may be when I have this opportunity to get ahead of something that kills millions of women. And what kind of screenings were you getting? Do you mean mammograms? No. So basically someone my age, you can't get a mammogram because your breast tissue is too dense. So they can't see anything. For more information on mammograms and for an amazing explanation as to why they can't see anything in young boobs, please listen to our interview with Dr. Monica Simmons in episode seven. I can't plug that episode enough. She's the best. So basically what I would do is every six months I'd go into my breast surgeon and even before getting the BRCA diagnosis, she would just do um, a screening and like feel around and make sure everything felt okay. And then I would get a sonogram as well. So an ultrasound. Honestly, I was like pretty calm about it, maybe because I was young, but I know as, as I got older, closer to the age where my grandmother was diagnosed, it would have just been scarier and scarier. And what kind of guidance did you get from your doctors? Did they support your decision? A hundred percent. And like, I was just so lucky that I had the doctor that I had, like, she's amazing. She like sat on the phone with my mom before the surgery, answering all of her questions. They were just like, they were so lovely and they did such an amazing job. And like my boobs look better now than they did before. And, but they honestly look so similar. They just kind of look like a little perkier and a little bit more forward facing. They just like, it's insane how good a job they did and how supportive Stay they were perky. through the process. Stay <laughs> I'm so of that. <laughs> Can you tell me more about your surgery? You mentioned that you had this surgery that was direct implant. So mm-hmm. can you explain that to me a little more? 
Yeah, sure. So basically the surgery was like six hours long and the breast surgeon would take out all of the breast tissue um, and she would switch to the other breast and then the plastic surgeons would start working on the implant. Um, I decided to keep my nipples. That was one thing that I felt very strongly about because I just felt like I was going to be deformed (laughs) without it. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's several options, you know, like you can get your nipples completely removed, which is, you know, more of like the hundred percent foolproof way to get everything. If you leave your nipples, there are, there's still breast tissue. It's just the minimal amount doesn't increase your risk of cancer and in a, a big way. So um, I, I found it worth it for just like my mental health in the years to come. Um, but, but some people get tattoos, some people get skin grafts. It just kind of depends. I was a good candidate for nipple sparing because I was like young and I didn't smoke and I didn't have cancer. I don't have cancer. So they didn't have to kind of remove, um, other skin that was, you know, tumorous or infected mm-hmm. with cancer. Um, yeah. So basically that's how it works. She, she did one and then the plastic surgeon came in and kind of after her. Um, and then I was in the hospital for one night and I had drains and those drains had to be changed twice a day. And basically you measured how much blood and liquid was coming out. Mm-hmm. And when there was underneath, like I can't, underneath a certain amount for a full day, you could get the drains removed. Yeah. I remember my sister had, um, she actually had breast cancer um, and she had a double mastectomy and I was the one who cleaned her drains. And I remember like yeah. doing the little, like they do the yep. little snake motion. You have to measure mm-hmm. the milliliters at the end. Mm-hmm. And like, um, to, that was probably, I mean, for her, it was probably the least stressful part, but for me, it was like, oh God, I got to get this right. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Um, like my boyfriend did it and luckily he's very meticulous, but I like, ugh, it would have grossed me out to have to do it by myself. <laughs> <laughs> Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, did you do anything to prepare yourself mentally for the procedure? I don't, I really don't know. Like for some reason I, and this is very like unlike me in any other circumstance, but I just was very much like, this is the reality and this is what's happening and I've accepted it and it's fine. And it's it's what's going to happen. Everyone's like, you're so strong. You're so brave. And I'm like, no, this is just what it is and it wasn't until I think I cried once about it like that this isn't fair and you know right before I was obviously very very scared to just have such a massive surgery that I'd never had before any kind of surgery before um but I don't think I really did anything because for some reason like in this one instance in my life it was just like there is no choice and we're just going to keep chugging along and moving forward and getting this over with can you have like a binder of like research? Oh yes, I'm I I making not this research. up. <laughs> not research. I had I had a binder full of like all my medical records and everything, and just like all the appointments and any like lists of stuff and notes from all the appointments and things like that. I feel like that's how you mentally prepared. Yeah, yeah, I that's probably you, that's how you. Yeah, yeah, that's how you would mentally prepare. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so we've talked to a few other, um, guests who've had surgery and the question that always comes up is how they made the decision for what size they were going to be. Did you want to just stay the same or did they give you any options for that? Yeah. So like I'm tall and 5'11", so I probably could handle even bigger boobs than I have, but basically I just wanted it to be natural. Um, and that's what I kept saying to the plastic surgeon is like, just wanted to be natural. I have naturally very like far apart boobs and so I was like if there's any way you could have them closer together like make me have cleavage like that would be you know the silver lining of this whole thing (laughs) if it's possible (laughs) um but yeah so I think I went from like a d to a double d Mm -hmm. um but during like my post-ops my last post-op with my plastic surgeon he was like you know your pockets are formed like you could you're tall you could totally go bigger if you want i'm like no no no. like i'm fine you know i i wanted it to be natural and i still you know stick with that yeah your pockets i are feel formed. like it was that phrase yeah. is gonna stick in my head <laughs> <laughs> i feel like it was um a moment of levity when you were going through it too because i think well maybe this was just me but i was like i'm gonna start a pin board or a pinterest board of boobs no and i then didn't I realized- do that Right? Didn't we do that yeah, at work? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sitting at the bench, we did. I was showing. I remember showing you different boobs. So you mentioned earlier that your breasts are pretty much the same. Are there any mm-hmm. differences at all that you can think of between the breasts you have today and the breasts you had before your procedure? Yeah, they're definitely like a little bit more closer together, but not that much. I just because they're far apart, the pockets kind of when they set in, they, they kind of are far apart too. But my nipples are facing forward mm-hmm. like fully forward they're like even which I feel like it's just not the norm for most women so that's kind of nice um and like from the side it looks like I have bigger boobs and obviously I have scars I have really long scars underneath each breast and then two small circular scars on each side where the um the drains were mm-hmm. but they you know they heal skin color and like I really don't notice them very often 
do they feel any different like sensations or like, is there any numbness or weird nerve stuff that happened afterwards? Yeah. 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 It's, there's lots of weird stuff with that. So basically they like, they scrape out everything, you know, they have, they have to take out all of the nerves because that's intertwined with the breast tissue. Um, and so, but your nerves regenerate. So I knew that I was going to have some numbness. So basically it's like the front of your chest is fine. And then you kind of go like right underneath where your nipple is and that goes like numb to the scars. And then on the side, like if you just drew a line across your, across each breast at the nipple and below to the scar is numb. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's very weird. Um, and like my nipples still have full sensation, but it's like a different sensation than what it was before. Um, and then through like the, after like the, the first year of healing in the first year of healing, there was a lot of like nerve pain, you know, knock on wood, it wasn't that bad, but there were sporadic moments of like very sharp nerve pain, which is mm -hmm. probably just nerves regenerating. And I remember like being in work meetings and like having to resist, like grabbing my boob because it, you know, was so painful. That's just kind of, you know, you go to hold whatever you're in pain. Um, but all in all, I feel like I was very lucky with the, the healing and mm -hmm. any kind of like pain or anything. What was your relationship with your breasts like before the surgery? That's such a good question. Um, I would say that for a long time, I had no boobs. I was very, very, very skinny. Um, and so I, you know, it was just like a pencil. And then all of a sudden, like towards the end of college, I got boobs and, or like more <laughs> boobs. And they were always just kind of like far apart and there. They were never like annoying. They were never too big. Like the way my pockets sit, they sit like upright. I don't have like creases or whatever, like where you get like under boob sweat. Like mm -hmm. I don't have any of that. So they were just kind of there. Um, it was never like a defining feature where like I had great cleavage and, you know, I'd show it off all the time. And I was never like close that tall girl with the big boobs or whatever. They're just kind of there. Mm -hmm. Um, but I felt like I finally got a pair of decent boobs that I, then they were gone because I had to get the surgery. <laughs> um, but you know, luckily they were never, and I remember talking actually to the girl I met on Instagram and she said the same thing that like she like has really, really small boobs. She's very, very petite. So it was never like a, defining characteristic of herself so having to lose them wasn't the biggest deal and, and I I agree with that I think losing the opportunity to experience breastfeeding was probably more of something that I had to just kind of real learn to accept because I always thought I would breastfeed and my mom was always like talking about how she breastfed me and how, how good it is for you and the baby and whatever um, so that's probably something I had to let go of a little more than than actually my boobs. And what about now? How has your relationship with them changed? Mm, I don't have to wear a bra. So that's nice. Um, the, I guess it's really like, it's just kind of there. Like I try to explain to you, like it doesn't feel like, especially the numb parts doesn't really feel like they're mine it mm -hmm. they're just like they're just there it's very it's hard to explain yeah like maybe like touching your foot while it's asleep like you see yourself touching it and you know you're touching it and you know that it's there but it doesn't feel like anything um have your doctors indicated all if that numbness will ever go away or is that something you're always going to feel no I'll always feel it 
And I don't actually like notice it day to day unless I touch that area, but like sometimes it'll like itch or like I'll feel an itch on the inside, but you go to scratch it and it's numb. So it doesn't, yeah, it's, just, it doesn't do it's a very weird. Yeah. So I think I think about them less. They're just kind of there. Do you still wear like the same types of bras and clothing that you did before? Or has that changed at all? I don't wear underwire bras, which I used to before. I just wear like bralettes. Um, and it was actually like, I had to find like the most comfortable, like the right ones, which was uh, a longer process. Same with finding bathing suits too, that don't like have mm-hmm. underwire that cuts right at my scar and ones that cover my scars because you don't want the sun to hit them or they darken. Um, so everything that in that way is a little bit different, but like, also like, I don't wear bras sometimes because they just sit up on their own. <laughs> is, that a, is that a plus or a minus for you? I would say it's a plus. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Why not? Like, you know, when you're like running down the hall or like get your buzzer or something and it's mm-hmm. like, you have to hold your boobs because you feel like they're like flailing everywhere. It's, mm-hmm. I don't have to do that anymore. And that was like a conscious thing where I'm like, oh, like they don't move. So I don't need to do that. <laughs> um, what were some of the major and minor concerns and fears you went through as you were going through all of this? I like- think the major concerns were like feeling like I was deformed, um, not feeling like feminine because like, again, I'm really tall and it's not like I have like really big butt or like, you know, crazy curves or whatever. I'm tall and I'm skinny. And so I felt like if I didn't have boobs, I would feel not womanly or feminine. And that's why I chose to do the nipple sparing. Um, and then like, that's like the mental aspect. And then like that actual physical aspect is of course, something going wrong in the surgery, having permanent nerve damage, um, you know, a, a nipple dying or skin dying, which, you know, if it doesn't, these doctors are so amazing at what they do. You have to scrape, scrape everything out, but leave the blood flow and blood supply to the skin or it'll die. So we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but I've never heard that phrase before a nipple dying. Tell tell me Mm -hmm. what you mean by that. So basically it's like your skin all has blood flow to it Mm -hmm. and that's how it stays alive. It doesn't turn black and die when they're doing the double mastectomy, they're taking out everything underneath that layer of skin, mm-hmm. but they have to keep the blood supply intact or there won't be any blood flow to the skin and the skin will die. And so that's always a risk because what they're doing is so invasive and mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's so many little pieces of breast tissue they're trying to get out that there is a chance that they'll nick blood supply and that they won't realize and that a, your skin yeah. will start to die. Wow. So since you did do nipple sparing, do they still have to do screenings on that part of your breast or are you, are you kind of at the same risk as the general population now? I go in for yearly screenings, um, not sonograms, literally just like, um, the, the, my breast surgeon just feeling around, making sure things feel okay. There's no, there's no real risk. The increased risk of keeping my nipples was so minute that there's no like extra anything I need to do every three years. I have to get an MRI to make sure that my implants are okay and that they haven't like popped or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like, I don't know, every 15 years, maybe it's longer than that. I really don't remember. I'll have to get them switched out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was going to be my next question was, did they tell you anything about possibly having to get them replaced down the line? Yeah. I think cause I did it so young and I'm, you know, don't smoke and don't really drink or 
anything like that. Like I'm in a good place to keep them for a long time. Um, but except yeah, for when, except for when I peer pressure her. <laughs> yeah, that's the only time I drink more than one trick. <laughs> um, but yeah, I should be able to keep them for quite a while and hopefully the MRIs don't see, you know, don't show anything crazy. I'd rather not go through surgery. It's a lot less invasive. This, you know, they go in through the same scar, the pockets mm-hmm. are already there, they just switch them out, but still like there's always risk. You still have the same boyfriend you had when you did yeah, 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 okay. yeah. <laughs> um, how did he react to all of this? Um, like the whole thing, he was like incredibly supportive. He is a lot more, he's next to me right now. And he's like, That's why yeah. I asked if you had your headphones in. <laughs> I, was yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw his head bob over a few minutes ago. And well, I, I, knew, I knew someone was there and I didn't want yeah. to put you in a weird situation. So <laughs> yeah, he's right there. Um, no, I mean, he, he's heard everything I'm saying, but he was incredibly supportive. He's definitely like, the more like positive one of us um I'm definitely a more of a realist and negative of of a thinker that's my go-to um and so he's just a lot more lighthearted in that way and positive and he you know makes me laugh every day and I think all of those characteristics were incredibly important for this whole process because it was like very tough and very scary and regardless of how scared he was he didn't like show it to me um just kind of let me be scared and handle it in the way I was handling it and then he like took really good care of me he changed my drains gave me all my drugs he you know he lifted your water cup to your mouth he lifted my water Aww. cup he, he spoon fed me he pushed me up because people you don't realize like how much you use your arms and your torso mm-hmm. and whatever to to move and so you can't get off the couch can't get out of bed can't go to the bathroom when you're in the very beginning like you can't do anything he and also- so Mm-hmm. He also, I think, I don't know if this was your idea or his idea, but he also like when, I think it was when you went into surgery or the day when in surgery, he did a group text with like all of her friends and just giving like little mm-hmm. updates. And then also, I think like as you were healing, like every once in a while you get like just a picture. A picture, of yeah. I remember with your yeah. hair getting braided. and yeah, just- yeah. Our like four or five male listeners out there, take note. He sounds like a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, so I think it, it really, you know, he really like stepped up in a different, in a different way that we'd ever, for something we've never had to go through before. So where did you find strength through this process? What, what did you tap from to, to find strength or even laughter through this process? Oh God, I don't know. it's it's so hard to answer that question like I I really don't know because there's never been another instance in my life as I said I'm like very negative first thinker Uh, I'm very much a realist but in this situation I wasn't like that I was just kind of like very one foot in front of the other need to get this done so I, I don't know where I pulled the strength from to do that honestly because it that isn't my norm um, it was just like survival like, mode. Yeah. Like, to- yeah, like totally survival mode. And I guess because I'd never thought of it as a choice from the second I found out that I had BRCA, it just was like, this is something that needs to get done. So now I'm in planning mode and, you know, and that's it. So I know your family was kind of along the, for the ride with you in the beginning when you were first getting tested, how did they react when you decided to have this procedure? Um, 
they were totally on board, like for sure. I mean, I didn't decide to have the mastectomy until after I knew I was BRCA positive. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, they were totally on board. I think that my mom would have been very much opposed to me not having it. I think she would have thought it was stupid that I wouldn't have had it. Um, mm-hmm. We never had that discussion because I was always on board, but they, everyone was very supportive. Everyone was very much like, you're so strong, you're so brave, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, no one was like, that's stupid. You shouldn't do that. Did your insurance cover it? Yeah. So basically insurance fully covers this because it's more expensive to go through cancer surgery. I mean, cancer, um, cancer treatment. And mm-hmm. that's how they look at it, which is super fucked up. But like, yeah, <laughs> honestly, I'm, I'm glad because this, you know, I, I actually, I got the, the bill after and for one of my boobs for the plastic surgeon, it was $140,000 just yeah. for one boob for him putting in the implant and like whatever else. Damn. There's so much other costs. Like that was a minute little thing. There's everything else they do to you during this time. So thank goodness that they cover it. And don't you love how they price it per boob? I know it's, it's hilarious. Like, do they price it per testicle? Right. Like we need to do an episode <laughs> just on insurance that's a good one. Yeah. and how much I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and how, how important it is like that you, like you were lucky to have insurance at the time and to have, oh, yes. to be taken care of in that, like yeah. can you imagine facing that without. Yeah, absolutely. That safety net I, assistance cannot imagine I can't imagine facing this with cancer so like my like second post-op I think it was six months after my surgery or no sorry it was like three months after my surgery my second plastic surgery post-op I saw my doctor you know I went he checked everything out everything was fine then he was like I have a patient in the other room and she is just terrified and she's trying to figure out if she's going to do straight to implant or going to do um skin tissue. So basically if you don't want to do an implant, they take tissue from like, they take fat from your stomach or your butt or whatever, and they put it in your boot, which is much more of an invasive surgery because you're having multiple surgeries. And she was trying to figure that out. And she, he let me know that she was a cancer patient, like, and what I just talked to her quickly. And I'm like, oh my gosh, of course, of course she came in and she was wearing a wig and she just looked so terrified. And it was just like such a humbling experience because she just looks so scared and I just like couldn't imagine having to deal with this and be on chemo and radiation and actually deal with the cancer diagnosis like I just feel so lucky to be able to have done this when I can how I how I was able to yeah what advice would you give to someone who is trying to decide whether they should get the test I think you should 100% do it um, there's been a couple instances where my breast surgeon has reached out to have me talk to people who are recently, um, they recently tested positive and trying to figure out what to do with surgery. And I think I tell them the same thing too. Like, obviously it's your body, it's your own choice, but like you're given an opportunity to, to cheat God and kind of know your future and deal with it in advance. And I think that you're selfish to yourself and to the people that love you if you don't do it. Um, these there's not many other instances like this where you know your odds in advance and can make an educated decision um and that like the lead up really sucks right after really sucks but within a few weeks like you're fine you know you're you're still healing but you can move around a little I think I was had to be with someone all the time for two weeks and then my boyfriend went back to work and 
you know, no one was with me and I was fine. I could get up and go to the bathroom. I could feed myself, you know, like the lead up sucks, but then you've just possibly added years and years and years to your life. Um, so as someone who's gone through it and with a few years between you and the experience now, is there anything else you want to share? Anything we didn't cover? I would literally be like, find a way to reach out to like, reach out to me on my Instagram and I'll like, I'm happy to talk to you. Like I've talked to several other people that see my breast surgeon. And I talked to that, that person who saw my plastic surgeon and like, I'm very open about it. Like I literally showed my boobs to my, my female friends at the job Alyssa and I were at like in the bathroom. <laughs> like I'm very open. It's just like, no one really goes through this. So there aren't that many reasons. There, there are not that many resources. Like, Do you want to see my boobs? <laughs> Cause I know everybody wants to. I knew everyone like went through it with me when I was at this job. We we're all very close and I had good girlfriends there. I knew they all wanted to, but I knew they weren't going to ask. So I was like, let's all just show you. It's crazy. could you ask like should people like your doctor helped connect you but did you ask for that do you think sometimes people do need to ask for it or is like just need to know that maybe that they should if their doctor doesn't prompt them that they should ask their doctor to help connect them with people I think so yeah why not I mean I definitely think so and and I was very close with my breast surgeon like you know she's someone whenever I go in for my appointments you know before COVID she'd always give me a big hug when I saw her like we just like vibed really well so she reached out and asked if I was open to talking to people and I was like you know that's like the least I could do in this situation um so I think that there, there will always be someone like like that that your doctor has you know that your doctor knows and to, can connect you with I definitely think it's worth it it makes things less scary so talking about showing your breasts to people, how do, how do people react most often when they see them? They're just like, wow, they look really great. Like, whoa, like, I mean, Alyssa, how did you react when you saw them? <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. I know, right? Um, That's probably I mean, a no good sign be though, because like, that means they look yeah. like boobs. Look yeah, like I don't, I things. honestly don't even really remember. I remember when I, your picture, when I saw your pictures that you had taken from before, Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just like, wow, these are incredible. Maybe that's what I said when I saw your real boobs. I hope so. I mean, no one's going to be like, wow, you look deformed after you go through this like, terrifying surgery experience. But like, I think more, more times, I think always like people are like, they look really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I oh, yeah. had someone look at them, my, my boyfriend's best friend's wife, who was born and raised in LA and has seen like a ton of fake boobs. And, you know, this is this is different than just getting a boob job. They're taking away all your breast tissue. It's a completely different thing. And but she was like, you know, I've seen so many fake boobs. And like, yours look better than all of these other fake boobs that I've seen, which is kind of funny. That sounds amazing, though. Like, I kind of want to see them now. <laughs> you don't have <laughs> to in the same place. <laughs> don't think too hard about these great what word do you use most often for breasts boobs what's your least favorite word for breasts titties that's the one that's the one so many people hate titties and tatas everyone hates those (laughs) (laughs) and sometimes tits but i think that they really think titties and they're just they're rapid fire so they panic (laughs) <laughs> like, I'm, to- I'm toying with the idea of calling them tit fire questions but so many people hate the word tits that's and I'm really like, I don't funny know. Like, <laughs> I like that 
You like it? <laughs> yeah, instead of Spitfire, Tipfire. Tipfire, great. right? Like, yeah. Trust Chloe's opinion. She's got great taste. Okay, okay. <laughs> Do you remember your first bra? No. Zero memory? I, rem- <laughs> I remember getting a camisole with a built-in bra and like ask my friend, like, do you see those straps? It's a bra. I'm like feeling so cool. <laughs> and it was just like That's the elastic. Was it the elastic around? Yes, the, the elastic that was built into the cami. You buy it like the gap at Gap Kids. Yeah. <laughs> those were big for a while. Yeah, the early 2000s was all about the shelf bra cami. Totally. What type of bra, if any, do you prefer and why? Now I prefer a just a bralette like something cotton with like elastic because it gives support but it's comfortable doesn't hit my scars um but I do have one real bra I call it that like has underwire and it's like something I would wear before I got the surgery and it makes my boobs look fucking huge which I'm not used to it's like they're massive and like I don't know what to do with them (laughs) (laughs) what's your favorite thing or something interesting about your breasts God, sorry, I'm thinking too much about this. This is this is tit fire. I gotta go quick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess just that they're I don't know that they're I don't know like they're just boobs. They'll stay perky forever. Yeah, there you go. Gravity has nothing on them. I kind of like they're just boobs though. That's that's a good answer. Yeah. That's actually a really good answer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is the hardest part of having breasts? Um, I think just everything that's like, it's not like the breasts per se. It's like what they mean to your womanhood, I guess. Like what they represent. Yeah. What they represent. And what do you wish those without breasts knew about breasts? That they're probably more annoying than they are. However attractive that people without breasts think people with breasts are. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Very Breast Podcast Ever was written, produced, and recorded by Nadia Figueroa and Alyssa McHugh. Cover art by Alyssa McHugh. Opening music by Margaret Tran. Check her out on Spotify. For episode transcripts and sources, please visit our website at theverybreastpodcastever.com. Do you have questions? Corrections? Do you want to tell us your breast story? Get in touch with us on Instagram at theverybreastpod or email us at theverybreastpodcastever at gmail.com. If you like our podcast, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe, share with your breasties, and consider donating to our Patreon. Thanks for listening. Now go out and make today the breast day ever. Hey, it's me again. Do you want to tell us your breast story? Do you know someone who works with breasts in their career or has a story to tell us? Do you just have a funny story about boobs? We want to hear from you. Please DM us on Instagram or email us at theverybreastpodcastever at gmail.com if you'd like to be on the show. See you next time, breasties. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 